Hey, good morning, everyone. God bless you, Paul. Salamat, Paul. Turn to the person that's sitting near you, if, you're, if you have a person sitting near you. And if you don't, then turn to the Spirit of the Lord that's all around you and say, it's a good morning. And if you happen to be watching this as a recording at some other time, or you're watching it live streaming now, but in some other part of the world, we praise God for your participation too. And so, you know, it's, it's morning somewhere, even if it's not morning where you are. But I pray that the day spring, the bright and morning star, Jesus himself, would bring the light of a new morning into your place wherever you are as well, for all of us. Because there's a new day dawning in the Lord. It's always true. There's always a new day dawning in the Lord. What do I mean by that? Well, it's not for nothing that Jesus is, in fact, called the day spring, the bright and morning star, because Jesus is in himself the dawn, the light. Uh, there's a wonderful scene in the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy. I don't remember which one it is. My son will know and will correct me about it, I'm sure. I'm too old to remember things very well anymore. But somewhere in there, if you've read the books or seen the movies, there's a, there's a moment where, uh, actually, I think, I think it's in, uh, in The Hobbit. Anyway, one of those films where there's a, there's a group that is uh, um, uh, trapped and, and bound and about to be eaten by one of these grisly creatures of fantasy that exist in those stories, trolls or something like that, ogres of some kind. And uh, suddenly, Gandalf, the, the wizard in that story, um, but who has a wonderful Christ-like quality to him in many ways, uh, arrives. And, uh, and these creatures that are about to consume our heroes in their ghastly ways uh, cannot stand the light of day. So they only operate at night. But they've been, uh, they've been tricked by uh, the little hobbits. They've been arguing all night long about how best to eat them, how they should be prepared, whether skinned or filleted or made into sausages or some other ghastly thing. And throughout all of this debate and uh, disagreement, they've lost track of the time until suddenly there is Gandalf standing on the, on the horizon with his great staff and he brings it down upon the rock and the rock cracks open and he says, the dawn light will take you all. And sure enough, the light of the day spring, of the dawn rises over them, turns them to stone, but sets the heroes free. And there is something of Jesus' story in that. There's an Easter morning kind of moment in that, that the enemy who thinks he's got us in his clutches, who is ready to devour us because he is a devourer and a deceiver, but he is also a debater, and he is also uh, himself deceived, he himself will be taken by the dawn because the Lord Jesus Christ rises with healing in his wings. So may that morning light be upon you today, right now, wherever you are, whatever time you're seeing this, because there's a lot of darkness all around. There's a lot of distraction. There's disease in these days. The pandemic continues. There's debates. We saw that this week. We see it every day. It's a time of distrust and discord, but it's also a time of harvest. 2020, the Lord said to us here at PCF, would be a year of harvest, and so it is. In fact, not only is it a year of harvest, by which we mean to say that God's purposes, which are always fruitful, are coming to a culmination, that God is bringing to completion, to a totality, to a fullness, those things that he has designed but also that here we are in the season of harvest, within the year of harvest. This morning we had a face-to-face -face, uh, gathering under the tent uh, out on our patio, and it was a wonderful thing. We did it wisely. We had distance between us. We wore masks. We were outdoors. Uh, but we had um, a few faithful gathered once again here on PCF property, and we're going to be doing that from 8.30 to 9.30 a.m. So we will continue with our 10 a.m. service online uh, and that's always an option for you that you can stream live, which we love to have you do, or which you can watch as a recording at later points or even watch again and participate with. But if you would like to be part of an in-person gathering and you're well and you don't have symptoms of COVID, then we invite you to come and be a part of the hour of worship 
and ministry that occurs there. We have worship time. There's a, a brief sermon. You actually will get to hear me speak in a briefer window of time. That in itself may be a miracle. You might not even believe it's possible. You'll have to come and see it. I did it this morning, though, right? I did it. Praise be to God. Yeah, there's laughter from the gallery because they know how shocking that is. But it worked. Uh, and, uh, and the Lord was with us. We even took communion. And uh, we receive offerings. And we pray blessings. So... Um, I'm thankful to God that we got to have that time. And as we were gathering together in that, I was mentioning to them, as I'm saying to you now, that we are in the harvest of harvest. If 2020 is a year of harvest, the fall is the season of harvest within that year. And in the same way that the tabernacle of the Lord, the temple of his dwelling, had as a holy place within it a core, a heart, a special sacred sanctuary an inner sanctum, the sanctum sanctorum, the holy of holies, the kodesh ha-kodesh. And this season that we are in, the harvest of harvest, I see it in a similar way as an opportunity to recognize that even in the midst of all the challenges and trials and tribulations and perhaps temptations that you and I are facing, there is a holiness of the Lord dawning in our midst and a holy of holies within his presence. Today we are going to talk about dwelling in his presence. Today we are going to talk about the fall feasts of Israel and particularly the Feast of Tabernacles, which has just begun on our calendar. And I also want to talk to you about something that God has sown into you and grown in you, and it's time for a harvest. But before I do that, a couple of things. I want to mention that our Praise School of Ministry is on hiatus right now. We're on a break, uh, and we are going to be starting back up in two weeks. By the way, if you're a member of the class, I'm giving you extra time to complete your paper. So if you're taking the class, the class for credit, the, uh, the, the, the Fundamentals of Faith 1 class that we finished last week, I'm going to send out a message today. I'm giving you another couple of weeks on that paper. You don't have to take the courses for credit, by the way. You can just audit it, and there's no particular homework, although I hope that you will find in the reading and in the discussion that there's something rich and valuable that is deposited in you as you pursue the things of the Lord. And that's why I want to invite those who not only have been part of previous classes, but maybe haven't taken a PSOM class before. PSOM, by the way, for those who might not know, stands for Praise School of Ministry. It's where we plant seeds of ministry in you that can go out and be grown into a harvest for the Lord. It's where we pour streams of ministry into you so that you can go out and be a fountain of living water to others. It's not really us that does that, of course. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. But together, I and my fellow instructors, including our registrar, Sister Tammy Goodman, who's part of our pastoral team, we uh, endeavor to create and craft classes that help all of us together to invest in the Word and let the Word be invested in us, hear from the Lord and let the Spirit move in us, and prepare the people to minister the gospel. You don't have to be a pastor to be a minister, but you can't be a follower of Jesus without being a discipler of others. Because Jesus has called all those who follow them to, to Him to take up their cross, which is to be yoked with his yoke, which means to plow the same plow line that he is plowing, to work in the same harvest that he is leading, to be a minister of his grace, to be a witness to others. So whatever your particular work is, whatever your profession, whatever your background, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are called to be a minister and you need the equipping of his spirit. Fundamentals of Faith 2, starting in two weeks, is going to be all about the spirit-filled life. Turn to someone around you or that Holy Spirit that is there and say, I want more of the Spirit-filled life. I do. I want more of the Spirit-filled life. I need more of the Spirit. And the Scripture says that He gives His Spirit without measure. You know, the Holy Spirit is infinite because the Holy Spirit is God. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, one God, infinite, without boundary, without any measure. So when we are told that He gives His Spirit without measure, what it means is He gives all of Himself and there's no end to Him. So you and I can be filled to overflowing with His Spirit. We'll talk about living in the fruit of the Spirit, the character of Christ being developed in us. We will look at the gifts of the Spirit, the essential capacitation that comes from the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom to discern in the midst of deception. The wisdom and the power 
to proclaim the word of God, the message of God, a prophetic utterance of God, the power to pray for healing and see it occur. That comes from God, but it is intended to come through you. Jesus did that by the Spirit, and he said, by that same Spirit, you would do it. Jesus said, the works that I do, you will do, and more of them you will do, because he's multiplying a harvest through us. And the evidence of that is not only the resurrection of Christ, which we celebrate once again today. By the way, we're going to take communion. So at the end of this message, if you have some bread in your home, if you have some juice in your home, or something that can approximate the cup of Christ, the bread of the body, then I invite you to prepare those elements, pray over them, to consecrate them. You can do that as a minister of God. And I bless you in that as, a, as the pastor of this church and the giver of this message, the preacher of this message from the Lord. I invite and encourage you to participate in communion with us today. And when we do that, it's a Eucharist. That means Thanksgiving. It's a Thanksgiving feast. Thank God for what he has done. By bringing Jesus to life out of the tomb, we have first fruit of the harvest. Now, Jesus is the first fruit, but you and I are part of the fruit of that harvest too. And we are called to pray for more workers of that harvest and to go out and to share that witness. And we need the power of the Spirit in order to do that. We need the character of Christ in order to rightly witness to the world because we in ourselves, we, we, we falter, we fail, we sin. I do, you do. Not intentionally, I hope, although there are times where we give in to temptation or we yield to an emotion or we fall victim to a pattern or a habit. And so all of us can relate to this, right? Quite honestly, let's be honest about that. And therefore, we need the Spirit of Christ to be richly dwelling within us, the Word of God sown like seed within us so that the fruit of Christ's character can be born out in us so that we can walk in the Spirit rather than in the ways of the flesh. And that when we do falter and fail, even as John wrote to the early church and said, so you and I also can be assured that if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to fill us with His Holy Spirit. If we ask for His Spirit and the gifts of His Spirit, which the Scripture tells us to do, Paul wrote to the church, and that means he was writing to you and I by the power of the Spirit and said, eagerly desire the greatest gifts. Paul said, I wish that all of you prayed in tongues uh, more than I did. Paul said, pray for the gift of prophecy. Paul encouraged the people to ask for the gifts. And the greatest of the gifts is an expression of love. Ask for God's love. Oh, how we need his love in these days. These are days in which the love of many is growing cold. Don't let that be true of you and I, but it won't be just an effort on our part that will achieve the love of God within us. It's an invitation to God from us that says, you who have offered your love to us, now fulfill and overflow that love through us. We love because of his love first for us. All of these things are about the life of the Spirit, and it's what we'll be studying in Fundamentals of Faith starting two weeks from today. If you're interested, go to mypcf.org. You can click on the, on the PSOM ministry page, or you can go to the events page that describes our upcoming classes. We are also going to have a class taught uh, by Sister Tammy Goodman on spiritual warfare. Talk about a place to walk in the Spirit, to be armored in the Spirit, and to come against the principalities and powers of this evil age that like those ogres that I told in the story just now from Tolkien, they, those powers, though they are invisible to the natural eye, they are active in our world. And you can see their effects all around us. And what they desire to do is tear down, destroy, divide, and devour. And how will you and I stand against them? Only in the light of the Lord. Only in the power of his might. Only in the spirit. To pray in the spirit, live in the spirit, and achieve victory in the spirit, according to the scriptures. That's the focus of spiritual warfare with Tammy Goodman that'll be starting in two weeks as well. So check it out on our webpage, or you can email info at mypcf.org, and we'll get more information to you. I want to pray a blessing over you for your faithfulness to give, which can also be done online at mypcf.org, or you can mail in your checks to the church here, Praise Christian Fellowship of Los Angeles, 2235 Beverly Boulevard. That's in L.A., California, 90057, and our address is on our website. You may want to check out our webpage. You may want to take a look at our Facebook page or our 
uh, our, uh, follow us on Instagram or YouTube. This isn't about just some kind of sloganeering promotion of an organization. This is about ways in which you, as the body, can continue to be connected together even in times of trial. Because we are one body in Christ. And that, in fact, is what the Feast of Booths is really all about. It's about being one people gathered together under God, indivisible, in the dwelling place of God, dwelling in God and God dwelling with us. What a wonderful promise for us to focus on today. I'm going to be looking also at Luke chapter 19 today, and you might wonder why, and I'll tell you why in just a moment, but I invite you to open your Bible to that passage, Luke chapter 19, and let's pray together, shall we? Father, as we open your word today, we ask that you would guide us by your spirit to hear from you, to understand, to apply, to activate and engage that which you are calling us into, the mission of your purpose, the meaning of your life, the the glory of your word. And Lord, that you would, through us, bring forth a great harvest in the world, shine your light, make us salt and light in the world for your name's sake, Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Shelter in place. It's a phrase we've become accustomed to. In fact, in recent years, shelter in place has been used for a lot of circumstances, and almost none of them that I can think of are what you would call good. It's interesting that as much as we talk about how difficult the year 2020 has been in so many ways, not least of which, of course, is the global pandemic, but also social unrest and discord, grappling with issues of injustice, grappling with issues of division, grappling with issues of disagreement about how to advance into the future. And these are things that are happening not just in the nation that I'm standing in here right now and that most of you are likely in the United States, but really in various ways all over the world. But despite everything that we could discuss about the trials of 2020, I was thinking about this phrase, shelter in place, and I was reminded that in recent years, there's been a lot of things, um, or over the whole range of years, even many more, that have invoked the response of sheltering in place that haven't been a part of this year in a particular way that I can think of on a national scale, at least. And yet, it's interesting how those things that were so devastating before can quickly be forgotten when you're caught up with whatever is devastating you now. In other words, yesterday's worries always seemed like really big worries. But once they're over, the worries that you're really worried about are the worries today. And that's a way that people can live, and in fact, many people will. And you and I probably would if it weren't for the Lord. But heaven forbid that we should be dwelling in that place all the time. Heaven forbid that we should encamp in that attitude of worry. Jesus himself said, don't worry about tomorrow. It's got its own worries. Concern yourself with today. But many of us, if we're not holding on to yesterday, we may forget the reality that some of the things that we worried about last year or two years ago, we're not worried about at all anymore. And some of them, it's not because they're not there. It's just that they pale in comparison to whatever you're dealing with now. Am I making sense? Are you tracking with me? Are you getting what I'm talking about? I don't want to be too flippant about the topic because I want to reference some some really difficult things. Do you realize that it was three years ago, I think, this weekend, uh, that there was the the major mass shooting in Las Vegas. I remember waking up the, the morning that, the, that that news had broken because it had happened essentially overnight and just being shocked and horrified that once again there had been a major shooting in the United States. And of course, this one was particularly devastating. And I have no doubt that for those who were present that night and for those who lost loved ones that night, the memory uh, has not faded at all, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. I pray that the grace of God would continue to meet those people where they are and bring to them a measure of peace and healing. But I can imagine that the horror of that has very long reach. But for many of us, 
it may feel like as we think about it, at least for you, it may be as it was for me, that when I hear that, I think that was three years ago. It almost feels like a lifetime ago. And yet I remember those times when we were constantly praying against shootings. And I don't mean to say that such things couldn't happen again. Heaven forbid, I pray that they don't. But it's interesting how that so fixated our attention over a season of time and then something else comes along. But one of the things that many of us have learned, perhaps you've had workplace training in active shooter events, is shelter in place. Find a place to get safe in the midst of an active advancing threat. That's one kind of shelter in place. I remember as a kid, we used to routinely have uh, earthquake drills. And I guess we still do those as a society from time to time. Somehow it seemed to me that we did more of them. Maybe it's because not only did we have earthquake drills, but we had nuclear attack uh, drills. And we also had, where I grew up, there was a nuclear power plant nearby. So we would have drills in case there was a what they used to call the China syndrome event or a meltdown of that. And uh, so we drilled and basically the, the drill was the same. And you know the drill, shelter in place, get under your desk, have your head covered, shelter in place because something is shaking the whole world. Something is burning the world down. Something is moving the mountains and in the midst of an advancing act of danger, shelter in place. In these days of COVID, shelter in place came to mean the the shutdown of society. It came to mean being at home if you could or being home as much as possible, even if you had to continue to go out and work, especially if you were uh, an essential worker, as we say. Um, and therefore, there were mechanisms that we all had to institute to try and create some harbor of safety against this advancing pandemic, shelter in place. Well, it seems like a negative phrase because of all those associations. But today, I'm titling the sermon, Shelter in Place. And I don't want it to create in you that sense of negativity. I want, I hope, for it to invite you into a place of peace and security in the midst of every storm. The Lord is a high tower. The righteous run into him and they are safe. If you're going to shelter somewhere, shelter under the shadow of the wings of the Almighty. Shelter in his place. That's what we want to talk about today. And next week, the second half of this two-part series will be called Inhabit His Grace. Will you say those two things with me? Shelter in place and inhabit his grace. The Feast of Tabernacles is the third and final of the fall feasts of Israel. It is the final feast of the agricultural year of Israel. There are three major feasts in the ancient calendar of Israel that are still um, celebrated today by the Jewish people today and which have meaning for uh, us as Christians as well because the, the, the feasts not only show us something about God's provision throughout the past, they also invite us to a recognition of God's present promise and they focus us on the prophetic purpose that is in God's future. This is something that I've been talking a lot about this year, the past, the present, the future. Throughout our series on Joshua, we talked about that. And it's because all those things come together in the economy of God, in the kingdom. The past, the present, and future are brought together and brought to a fullness of time. And that fullness is a harvest, and that harvest is a blessing, and that blessing brings forth thanksgiving from you and I. So let's talk about these feasts. The fall feasts are kicked off or initiated by the Feast of Trumpets, which we uh, know as Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the new year. So in ancient Israel, there were actually two ways that the year was calculated. The year began, the first month began in the spring and actually with the beginning of the seven feasts that, that together cumulatively, I almost can say that. I don't know why the word cumulatively is hard to say. Maybe I'm just trying to talk too fast. But those seven feasts together make the full year. So that year agriculturally began in the spring. It had to do with the time of planting, sowing seeds, and it finds its culmination in the fall. And the winter is kind of a recycling period. 
In fact, you can think of it almost as death and resurrection for a new cycle. One thing that this reminds us of is that there is more than just one cycle operating at any time. And in light of that fact, Israel not only had the agricultural year that began in the spring, culminated in the fall, recycled over the winter, and then started again, but in the fall, there was also the beginning of a new civic year, uh, a, a new cultural year. Now, that might seem strange to you and I to think, well, why would they have two new years? But actually, we have that in our contemporary society as well. Think about it. We all recognize that January 1 is New Year's Day. December 31st is the end of one year. It's the time to celebrate the conclusion of one year and the beginning of another. But many of us also recognize the fall as the beginning of a new year. In fact, uh, both my wife Hazel and I this, year, this week were um, working hard because both of our respective workplaces were coming to the end of a fiscal year, the denomination of which our church is a part has the conclusion of its fiscal year in the fall, and uh, Hazel's workplace, where she works in accounting, also has the conclusion of its fiscal year at this time. Maybe your workplace or your business is like that as well. Not only that, but many schools, most schools, start in the fall. And so it is typical for us to think of the fall season also as the beginning of a new year in a kind of way. In that, we are like ancient Israel, and in that, we can also see this message, I would say, from the Lord, which is, even at the end of one thing, there is the beginning of another. When one cycle is ending, another is beginning. In the midst of times in which we may feel that things are lost, that things have been broken, that can't be repaired, that things have died, that won't be resurrected, that things, opportunities have passed, and they won't come again, hear this reminder from the Lord. Find it in the place of his dwelling. Sense it at the core of his spirit. Read it in the heart of his word that though sorrow may last for the night, joy comes in the morning, that all things are possible with God, that if you and I will keep on keeping on, keep on plowing that line, keep on working the harvest, then if we don't grow weary in doing the things that God calls us to do, we will reap a reward eventually. So the Feast of Trumpets was a declaration to all of Israel made with the blast of the trumpet sound that was to call all the people in together, saying a new time is beginning even as the old season is ending. There's a new time, a new year starting. And in 10 days between that, that day of Rosh Hashanah, the day of trumpets, uh, Yom Teruah, and the next feast day, fast day, the fall fast, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, there's 10 days in between that. Those days of awe were days of repentance. Days for the people of Israel to be gathered together in one place before the Lord. To shelter in place, as it were, before the Lord. And with repentance, to recognize that only by the grace of God do we live and breathe. And that the grace of God is what would make us fruitful. And that the forgiveness of God is what we need. So that coming into the fast of atonement there was a cleansing that came from the Lord upon the people. And then, immediately following that, there was a Thanksgiving feast. Even as we here in the United States and elsewhere around the world, this is a typical of other countries as well, we have a Thanksgiving holiday. For us, it's in the late fall. Uh, for ancient Israel, it was in the early fall, uh, even late summer to early fall. So the uh, Feast of Tabernacles for us uh, typically lands... Uh, in late September into mid-October. As it happens, the Feast of Tabernacles this year began this weekend. In fact, because Jewish holidays begin at nightfall, it began Friday night. Maybe you've been enjoying, as I have, that harvest moon that has been out at the same time. And in fact, the, the fall feasts of Israel and all the feasts of Israel were based upon a lunar calendar. When you look at the moon in the sky in these days, doesn't it feel like a sign in the heavens, an omen above? So very large the harvest moon is. It appears larger to us. Of course, it's the same moon. But by virtue of uh, the, the pattern of the moon's movement and the earth's, it looks very large in this season, and it stays up longer so that you see it over more hours of the night. And for us here in Southern California, at least, and probably throughout the West, that moon has been something like the color of this, of this slide 
the smoke in the sky, sadly, has turned the moon kind of blood red. There is a sign to be seen in the skies these days. It's a time that says, this moon is full. It's a sign that says, this time has come. It's a season that says, this harvest is ready for the reaping. The Feast of Tabernacles continues over the coming week. That's why I'm doing this two-part series at this time, talking particularly about the Feast of Tabernacles. I want to put it in the context of all of the seven feasts before we go forward to take a look at the passage in Luke chapter 19, which has to do with what God has sown into us, Luke 19 does, the story that Jesus is going to tell. What God has sown and grown in us and what it is that God expects of us as we come to him with our lives, ourselves. So the context for that today is the, the feasts of Israel, which are based on the agricultural year, but are also tied to the sacrificial system. So not only did the feasts relate to the spring planting, the early summer harvest, the fall end of the harvest, but it also related to particular acts of God that had brought about deliverance or redemption for the people of Israel and which were to be remembered by the people of Israel according to the word of God with sacrifices, with worship, with a holy recognition that was to take place in God's holy place, that was to take place in the tabernacle during the days of their wandering and ultimately in the temple. But each one of them also has a forward look. So there's looking back at the past of what God has done, recognizing the present cycle of the seasons that we are in, but also connected like a bridge, a pathway to the future that has messianic promise for each one of these feasts. Look at them with me, won't you? And by the way, you'll be able to later today download uh, this, this, these slides and you can look more uh, closely at some of the notes that I have available for you about the seven feasts of Israel. So each of these feasts carries us through the agricultural year. Each of these feasts relates to an activity of God in Israel's past that is glorious and worthy of remembrance. And each of them relates to some aspect of Jesus's earthly life and ministry. And the fulfillment is very specific to the dates. Now, there's three major sections. In the spring, there's sort of a tentpole feast that the others orbit around. They're, they're sort of satellite feasts. The Passover is the primary feast of the spring planting season, but it's followed immediately by unleavened bread feast and first fruits. Then seven weeks pass, seven sets of seven. You remember that the Lord created everything in seven days. I began today talking about how every, every time in the Lord is a new day. That's because after the completion of those seven days, all of Scripture collectively implies that what we are looking forward to is the eighth day, the next day, a new day, what the Scriptures and the prophets called the day of the Lord, a new age coming in which the culmination of this creation is finally refined into the revelation of a new heaven and a new earth. In fact, the book of Revelation that concludes the scriptures in the New Testament is about the day of the Lord and a new heaven and a new earth. And in chapter 21 of Revelation, you'll see as it comes to its conclusion that the, the Lord through his word speaks and says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with mankind, with humanity, men and women, his people. They will be his people and he will be their God, and they will dwell together, sheltered in place, in a fair haven, in a true heaven, in a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, a new earth, a new era, the day of the Lord. Hallelujah. What a wonderful time to look forward to. The seven sets of seven days that lead up to Pentecost reflect that divine perfection, God perfecting things over time, and it takes time. It takes 50 days. Seven times seven is 49. The new day that dawns is the Pentecost day. And Pentecost actually refers to 50. That is in the late spring or early summer. Then there are the fall feasts. So the tent pole in the spring is Passover. The tent pole of summer is Pentecost. And the tent pole of the fall 
culminates with the tabernacles, but it's preceded by what I've already mentioned. The blast of the trumpets declaring a time of repentance for a new year, the day of atonement, in which that repentance is responded to with the forgiveness that God has already prepared and poured out, and it finalizes in the culmination of a thanksgiving feast between God and his people. I mentioned that each of these has a relationship to the past. Passover, when God delivered the, the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and protected them from the angel of death that passed over, bringing death to the Egyptians that were enslaving them, and an end to the injustice that they had suffered under. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was when they had to leave uh, Egypt so quickly that they didn't even have time for the bread to rise. But the Lord wanted them to be fed. So he said, don't put any yeast in the bread. And so they had that flat bread that you and I would recognize as matzah. But interestingly enough, that flat bread also is an image, a picture for us of life without sin. In the scriptures, leaven, yeast, the agent that, that makes bread rise, is something that with just a very little bit hidden in the dough changes the composition of everything that is baked. It becomes a symbol of how something small and unseen within us, just a little bit of it, can completely change who we become. The Lord said, I want you to be people without sin, and the Lord is the only one who can make us without sin. But the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a reminder that God will deliver us not only out of slavery to injustice, but God will deal with the injustice within. God will deliver us from the slavery within, the slavery of sin. And the Feast of First Fruits is tied to uh, the provision that God makes to his people. In fact, when the Joshua generation entered into Israel, remember how we studied that last year? They crossed the Jordan. The Lord parted the waters for them. Well, when the Lord parted the waters of the Red Sea, it was the, the day of first fruits. And when the Lord parted the Jordan and the Joshua generation entered into Israel to have a feast, it was the feast of first fruits that they had. And you can read in Joshua 5, they did eat of the fruit of that land that year. Fruit they hadn't planted. Vineyards planted by others. Gardens and, and crops that had been planted by others. And they ate of them by the grace of God. Pentecost relates to 50 days after the passage through the Red Sea, God descended upon the mountain of Sinai in fire and holiness. He descended upon them. His word he gave to them, the 10 words, the Decalogue, the 10 commandments. And it's consecrated and remembered at that time, which is also tied to the beginning of the, the harvests. It's an early harvest of grain. The day of trumpets was a regular act action, activity in the time of Israel, but you can also see it reflected not only annually in their, in their uh, religious practices, but once again in the Joshua generation. Do you remember when they marched around Jericho and the walls came down when they blasted the trumpets of worship according to the word of Lord? Now, there are plenty of examples that I could make about the Day of Atonement and the judgment of the Lord, but I want to reserve more about that when we come to talking about the connection to Jesus in just a moment. Let me speak to the issue of tabernacles. Obviously, for 40 years, the children of Israel, the people of the, of the nation of Israel, were in the wilderness, and they lived in tents. I think it's no coincidence that today, October 4th, 2020, in the year of harvest, something the Lord said to me five years ago that this year would be a year of harvest. And I didn't know when this year began all that that would include. And even when pandemic began and we had to make our, our accommodations to that, I didn't know that October 4th would be the day that we would begin again an in-person service on our property, his property here. But when we did, you know how we were gathered? We were gathered under a tent. We were gathered in a tabernacle. And I thought, what a blessing of God's perfect confirmation that in this season, precisely the beginning, the first, the first Sunday of the Feast of Tabernacles is our first Sunday back in the tent of God, in the tent of meeting. A tent which, by the way, literally means, the, 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 the tent of Moed is what the Hebrew term is for the tabernacle. It literally means the tent of meaning time. 
It's not only a place, it's a time. For God already knew long before we learned it from, from Einstein that space and time are connected because God made them both. And the tabernacle, the temple, is actually a perfect illustration of that, of that quantum physical reality, that the space-time continuum belongs to God and that God knows how to coordinate the precise time and the exact place for you and him to meet. And that's what the tent of meeting is about. So God ordained today for us to meet. And God has ordained this message to you today. And maybe you're not listening to it on October 4th. I don't know what day or month or year you may be hearing this or reading it, however it might reach you. I want you to know today is the day, a new day, for you and God to meet in a new way. That's what the tabernacles are about. But the other blessing of that message of the tabernacle is it can happen even when you're in the wilderness, even in the, when you're in the place of wandering, even if you've sinned, and you've sinned, and I've sinned, because we know that about human beings. All we like sheep have gone astray. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The people of Israel could have entered into the promise earlier, but they doubted the Lord. And because of that, they ran in circles for 40 years. God told them that was going to be the case, but God didn't leave them because of it. He stayed with them. They were living in tents, but so was he. God, who dwells beyond space and time, came and physically manifested his presence in that tent to say, behold, the dwelling place of God is with his people. They will be my people, and I will be their God. And what he said was, they will go astray, but I will bring them back. And I will provide a redeemer who will make it possible for all people to be my people. That's the promise of the tabernacle. That's the promise of sheltering in the place of God. What a hope that gives us. What a comfort that gives us. But what a charge, what a commission that places upon us as well. Because God has not made us his people just so that you and I can hide under our desks. Just so that we can stay hidden in our rooms. I'm not trying to make a political statement about the wisdom of being, you know, working from home. I'm grateful that much of the work that I do can be done in my home. I'm grateful that my wife is working at home. I'm grateful that my kids are able to school from home. Not because I never want those things to open up again, but because I recognize that there has been uh, a, a positive impact from that in terms of countering what we've seen in COVID. I also recognize there's been a profoundly negative impact from it too. And I'm not denying that that there's been tremendous impact on our, on our economy, that for some people personally, it's been a devastating impact economically, perhaps even uh, psychologically and emotionally. Surely, uh, psychologically and emotionally. I mean, I felt the psychological and emotional impact, and I felt the grace of God throughout this time too, but I have felt the weariness. I have experienced the worry. I, have, I can relate to the strain, and perhaps you can too. And there's other things that make it difficult Maybe you have medical needs or other things. I've actually withheld on a procedure, just a routine thing, but I've waited to have it done because I felt that maybe it wasn't the right time. Maybe that's more than you needed to know. But I just want you to know, if you're experiencing things like that, I can relate to that too, and I'm not trying to diminish them. What I want to say is God would call us to act with wisdom in the midst of the circumstances we are in, but not with fear, not from fear. When I say shelter in place today, I'm talking about live in the Spirit of God and let the Spirit of God live in you. I'm not saying hide under a hill. I'm not saying like the people of Revelation who when they see the heavens falling say, why has God abandoned us? And they dig under the mountains to hide themselves from the stars falling, which might sound like uh, a relatively um, <laughs> apocalyptic scenario. But in this day and age, I think you and I are probably coming to believe that such things are more believable than not anymore. And yet, that's not the response that comes from sheltering in the place of God. The people of God will take from the Word of God that attitude that you and I studied together, PCF. If you're part of our fellowship and you've been part of a, uh, our teaching in this year, you've heard this. If you haven't, you can go back 
on YouTube or on our website and find when I was preaching out of the book of Ephesians that when we got to Ephesians chapter 6, what we heard from the Apostle Paul by the Spirit was having done everything else to bring yourself before the Lord regularly, routinely, and to invite and, and invest yourself with his word, having done all those things, stand. Stand on that word. Stand in that place. Stand on him. And having done all, stay standing. <laughs> that old Elton John song, I'm still standing. I'm still here. There's a Stephen Sondheim song that's, that says that. When we talk about somebody still standing, it means everything was shaking around me, but I was able to stand. I'm still here means people may have fallen to the right and the left, and everybody may be coming against me, but I'm still here. How? Not by my might, not by my strength, but by the power of God, by his spirit. How? By standing on the word and in the word, by leaning on the Lord, by being yoked to that light and easy yoke of Jesus Christ by picking up my cross, which sounds like a burden, but really is a blessing because it's the place where I can inhabit his grace and where his grace will inhabit me. And because of that, the Lord says, I expect you, having been invested in by me, to do something with that investment. I want to look briefly in our concluding minutes at Luke chapter 19, Next week, we're going to look at Luke chapter 21. The story that I'm going to share with you, a story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 19, very similar and actually probably more familiar to you in its form in Matthew chapter 25, and I'll talk about that in a moment, but we're looking at Luke 19 for a reason, is a story that most of us are probably familiar with. It's okay if you're not, and we have the scripture in front of us, so you can look at it with me. I'm going to take you through the story in a, in a little bit of an abbreviated summary form. You can read more of it, on your own, you'll find it in Luke chapter 19 in the, in the center end of the chapter, verses 11 to 28. It's known as the parable of the minas here, or as I said, more familiarly, you will have probably heard of it as the parable of the talents, which is how it is told in Matthew chapter 25. You might wonder, well, what's the difference? Minas and talents are both currency. They're both forms of money that would have been familiar to people living in first century Palestine. Forms of currency recognized within the Roman Empire at that time. And they're both large sums of currency. The mina is actually less uh, valuable than the talent. The talent is even more, uh, to make a very broad kind of comparison of value based on labor, labor uh, value, the mina is probably, a single mina was probably worth about three months to a day laborer. So three months of daily work would produce one mina. Whereas one talent might be something more along the lines of three years, two and a half or three years, something like that. And so um, both of them are large values. Uh, and that's the point. Jesus is using uh, currency of a large value to make a point in the story. Now, the second question you might ask, knowing what they are, is why is it different? How can I trust the scriptures if in one place he said mina and another place he said talent? Not that it necessarily is that pivotal to the story because it, it's sort of like saying 10, you know, $100 bills in one place and $100 bills in another. It's a big difference if you're the one getting the money, but the point is a lot of money, right? But the other reason that, uh, that we can see a distinction, I think, I would suggest, and I think this is uh, valuable for us to understand for for a variety of reasons, is that Jesus probably told this story multiple times. I told the, the, the crowd earlier, and here I am giving evidence to it, that it makes me feel good to know that Jesus preached the same sermon more than once. I feel I'm in good company if I'm preaching the same thing because Jesus himself did it. It's also reflective of the fact that this is clearly a story that was important in Jesus' mind for relating his teaching about the kingdom. And that's what he's talking to the people about. He's talking about the coming of the kingdom. Both Luke 19 and Matthew 25 occur basically at the end of Jesus' uh, three and a half years of ministry that led him from Galilee in the north into Jerusalem. And they are both very close to the time when Jesus is going to go to the cross. They are both being told around the time of the Passover at which Jesus would in fact be betrayed and would go to the cross and die and be resurrected. And notably, I mentioned to you that 
Each one of those feasts has a Jesus connection. You can see right there that that's that timeline connection. To the day Jesus crucified on the Passover. Jesus, the sinless body in the tomb, like the yeastless bread in the plate at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And I mentioned to you that it was on the day of first fruits that Moses parted the Red Sea and God delivered his people out of enslavement. It was on the day of first fruits that the Joshua generation entered into the land. Do you know that it was on the day of first fruits, specifically according to the scriptures, that we are told that the Ark of Noah settled on Mount Ararat. And do you know what that day is? That day is Easter. That day is Resurrection Day. That is the day that Christ Jesus rose out of the grave. The very day that the Lord said, you shall celebrate on this day that I bring forth fruitfulness from the earth is the day that he brought forth his son from the grave. And at that, he showed us that the fruit of Jesus is a harvest in which you and I are part. That he is the vine and we are the branches. He is the fruit that promises us that we will be fruitful as well. That if we abide in him and he abides in us, we will indeed bear much fruit. So each one of those feasts fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And it's very close to that time that Jesus is telling this story. That story leads forward to a place of, of enlistment for you and I. I mentioned how 50 days later on Pentecost, the Lord appeared on Mount Sinai and gave his word with fire to the people. 50 days after the parting of the Red Sea, that occurred. And then... Some 1,500 years later, on the first Easter Sunday, the first day of the week, the eighth day, if you will, in the Jewish reckoning, a new beginning, the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the grave, and 50 days following that, the Holy Spirit descended as fire upon the people gathered in the upper room, and he gave them the word of tongues. He gave them spiritual utterance. They were enabled to praise the Lord in the language of all the foreign people who had gathered there for the Feast of Pentecost. And it was the birthday of the church and the ignition of the mission, the great commission of Christ that you and I have been called into. That commission is evidenced in this story that Jesus tells because they think when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem at that Passover time that he's going to establish an earthly kingdom. They are looking for an earthly ruler. We know what that's like. We're in the middle of an election cycle. And I don't mean to diminish the reality or the importance of that. In fact, I'd like to lift up prayer for our president and first lady and those that we have heard this week have been diagnosed with COVID along with anyone and everyone that's been diagnosed with COVID. And in doing so, I also want to lift up prayer over the major party candidate of Senator and former Vice President Biden and his running mate because we are called to pray for those who are leaders of us. And obviously, the president is our leader, but it is worth noting also that Vice President Biden is a thought leader in the community of this nation. There are many people that are intending to vote for him. You may be among them. You may be among those that are intending to vote for President Trump. And that decision is yours. I invite you, I urge you, I, I, I adjure you to pray to the Lord and according to the values of scriptures and the wisdom of your own reckoning and the mind that God has given you and in the integrity of your heart, to consider who the Lord would have you vote for and then vote in good conscience for that. But pray for both candidates because these are people who have influence in our nation and will continue to have influence in our nation regardless of the outcome. And it is wise and right for us to be praying for them. But I particularly want to intercede given that the president has uh, received this diagnosis. We're not afraid. The uh, symptoms appear to be very mild from what we're being told. Praise God for that. But of course, we would continue to intercede. But the point I want to make is no earthly ruler can be the one in whom you shelter and expect to experience the grace and peace of God. You can pray a covering. You can intercede for, you can cast a vote for earthly rulers. And you can expect that God will ordain and orchestrate and put in place the rulers that he intends. But what you and I need to recognize is our trust is in the Lord. 
No matter who wins the election, no matter what comes from the election, even if a clear winner is not immediately uh, able to be determined given the complexities of this year, the reality is we know where we stand and we know in whom we trust. Our place is sheltered in the Lord. The people were expecting Jesus to be an earthly ruler and he wanted to show them that there was a different expectation of the kingdom. He told the story about a nobleman who owned land and was called by a king in a far country to come and receive a kingship of his own. In other words, he was receiving a, a kingdom and he had to travel a far distance to go and, 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 and be officially um, ordinated into that, that, that regent role. So in preparing for his departure, he came and gathered his servants and gave to them an extraordinary amount of resource. He gives to them here the minas. He calls 10 of his servants and gives them 10 minas. Now, if a single mina is three months labor, then 10 is 30 months labor. You've got two and a half years worth of, of money to, uh, to make do with and to invest. So it's, it's a clear indicator. I'm going to be gone for a while. And it's not even sure that he's going to be back within two and a half years. What he's saying is, you invest this wisely, according, presumably, to the ways that I've taught you and instructed you, so that you can bring a return on it, because I want to see you uh, occupy until I come. That's the way the King James Version puts it. Occupy until I come, is what it says in verse 13. Here in the New uh, International Version, it puts it in more contemporary terms. Put this money to work. But I want you to think in the broader sense of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, your master has invested in you. And he has said, I'm going away, but I won't leave you. And I'm leaving something with you. And what he has left with you and I is the Holy Spirit, which is the down payment of heaven. It is the deposit of God within us. And he's saying, I expect you to invest me into your world to bring forth the harvest that I intend. Now, there was a number of people in his household or in his company that didn't like this leader. So when he left and went on that journey, they sent a delegation to that far kingdom to follow him and go to that, that leader that was giving him a kingdom and say, we don't like this man and we don't want him to be king over us. We object. But apparently, their, their protest was in vain because this man was made the king. And he then did ultimately return after some long time. And when he returned, he called the servants together again and said, all right, now show me the return on the investment I made. What have you done with the money that I gave you? What have you done with the talents that I gave to you? And there are several that come forward and say, I produced 10 more. I produced five more. And so the master says to the one who produced 10 more out of the 10 that he had been given. He said, good, you've been faithful. Because of that, I am going to give you 10 cities. Now the money comes back to the master, but the master delivers a kingdom to his servants. 10 cities that this servant will be over. The one who produced five receives five cities. But then there is another servant who says, I only have what you gave me. I kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. In the version that Jesus tells in the book of Matthew, he actually buries the talent in the ground. The idea is the same. I put it somewhere where it wasn't going to multiply, but I also am giving it back to you. I knew, says this servant, that you would expect that whatever I gained out of it, you, you would take it. Because you take what you haven't, you, you harvest what you haven't sown. You reap what, what, what you didn't make. And so I didn't, I didn't want to produce for you but I'm giving you back what you gave to me. And the master says, really? Well, by that very same standard, or as Jesus says elsewhere, by the same measure that you've measured out for me, I'm going to measure it back to you. The same words that you've given to me, those are the words I'm giving to you. In other words, I am judging you according to your judgment. You who know the difference between good and wrong, let's apply that difference to you. You knew that I expected something. You knew that I would expect that whatever you gained from it would come back to me. Why didn't you at least put it in the bank? At least you could have gotten a little interest on it. The extraordinary disregard of this servant is more than just negligence. It's disrespect. In fact, it is outright 
disobedience. And the master says, because of it, what you have is taken from you and given to the one who has the most. But the people that are standing around say, why would you give it to the one who has the most? He already has the most. And the master responds and says, I tell you, everyone who has, more will be given. But for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. And then the story concludes by him saying, now, bring in that delegation that didn't want me to rule because I'm going to judge them right here and right now. I have the legal authority to do it as the king. I'm going to find them guilty and the, and the penalty is death because it's a capital crime to oppose the king. After he told this, Jesus went ahead. He went to Jerusalem. He went to celebrate the Passover. They thought he was coming to be a king. He was coming to be the lamb. They thought he was going to climb on the throne. He climbed on the cross. They thought that it was going to be an immediate victory in the world around them. He wanted it to be an eternal victory in the heart within them. When that victory is realized, you recognize that God is living within you and that the whole new creation that he intends to make, he's making it through you and me. We are the witnesses that will bring about the blessing. There's a day of trumpets coming, friends. And the trumpet sounds the return of the king. If you and I are sitting around debating, dividing, discouraging, and devouring one another, which isn't just out of the Hobbit, but also out of the scriptures, take a look at the book of Ephesians. Take a look at how we are told not to come against and claw against one another and eat one another alive. But if we are doing that when the Son of Man returns, the dawn will take us all. Because the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can't put it out. But if you and I have a heart of stone, then stone is all we are and stone is all we have and even that will be taken from us. But the Lord said, I'll replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Those who have received the Spirit he gives the Spirit without measure. You have God, and you'll have all of God. You have the Lord now, and you will have even more in the age to come. But these are the days to decide, what will you do with the time that is given? I guess I'm coming back to Lord of the Rings again, because that's what Gandalf talks about also. At a time when they're living in the midst of war and evil and darkness spreading through the land. And someone says to him, I, I never would have chosen to live in days like these. I never would have chosen to have to face these battles. I'm not up to it. I don't have what it takes. I don't know what to do. I'm afraid of what comes next. And the wise one said, none of us get to choose the times that we live in. All we can do is choose what to do with the time that we are given. But there is one who did choose the times and the seasons. And he chose you for this time. Don't be afraid. Be encouraged. Don't be misled. Be wise. Don't be divided. Be united in him. Don't give in to evil and don't respond in evil when evil is shown to you, but respond with kindness. Show goodness and mercy. Invest what God has given you, the God-given talents that you have from him. No one can take from you except God himself. But God calls of you to say, what have you done with it? It won't be enough to come back and say, I have it, here it is. I knew it was from you and I still have it. What he wants to know is, what did you do with it? At least invest it somewhere of some interest for some return. But really, what I think Jesus is saying to us is, pour out your life and my life will be poured into you. It's time for our service to complete and we're going to do it by receiving that outpouring of the Lord. Will you take your cup and your bread and I'm going to ask if Pastor Henji would bring to me those elements now. Here 
is that bread. Mine happens to be, and perhaps yours is too, but whether it is or not, it represents that unleavened bread that is the body of Christ. Lord Jesus, we recognize that here is your body broken for us that we might be made whole. You, Lord, were pierced for our sake so that we, as one people, whether we're in one room or under one tent or not, we are in one body in Christ. Unify us, Lord, together in you and purify us, Lord, by the sinless sacrifice of your perfect body. We receive it once again for healing, for encouragement, for strength and renewal in your mighty name. Lord, this cup of the new covenant that is poured out in your blood is the cup of the wine of the vine, the fruit of the vine. You are the vine. We are the branches. You have poured out your life for us. Your word says that the life is in the blood. All we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had no life within us. Your life has restored us. Friend, I'm going to pause this prayer to say, maybe there are sins of yours that are weighing heavily on your mind. Maybe you've been turned away from Jesus in recent days or recent times. Maybe you've never belonged to Jesus in your mind. But I want you to know that long, long, long ago, before you or anyone you know was born, he already belonged to you. He gave himself for you. And he bought you at a price. The price was his own life, his own blood. And that blood shed pours out blessing, forgiveness of sins, healing of sickness, deliverance from bondage, clarity instead of confusion, confidence instead of despair, life in the very place of death. Come and shelter in that place and let him pour his life into you. Now, you are invited. Don't wait. Receive. All you have to do is believe. You don't have to understand. You just have to believe. If you believe in your heart and you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and Savior of all in sin, you will be saved. You are restored. Your sins are forgiven. Thank you, Lord, for your blood. Thank you, Lord, for your life. In these days, there are many things that would shake us to the core. And I believe there are harder times coming. Don't give up. Press in. But what we do instead of giving up is looking up. Jesus talks about it in his last days on earth in Luke chapter 21. And we'll look at that next week as we continue in our discussion of the Feast of Tabernacles, of sheltering in the place of God and welcoming the Spirit of God. And together, we will look up because our salvation is drawing very near. God bless you, church.